On today's show, I have Josh Calderemis, co-founder and chief posted officer for Travis CI. Screw doing a podcast. I'm just going to do like Josh for an hour. <laughs> I'm Brian Aachen, and this is the Python Test Podcast, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. I announce new shows on Twitter at Test Podcast, and follow me at Brian Aachen. Okay, so the reason why I wanted you to come on here was because I don't know anything about Travis CI, but I have had a couple people say to me, "Hey, Travis CI is really important with with uh, testing, so you should do like a, a blog post or an episode on it." And and then I was also I've got a new pro um, I've got a new project that I'm working on, and I'm following Jeff Noops Noops. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I hope I offend him so that I can. So that I know he's listening to my podcast, um, but he's got a post that says "Open Sourcing Pyth- a Python Project the Right Way," and one of the sections is "Continuous Integration with Travis CI." So all I know is Travis CI. The CI stands for Continuous Integration. That's pretty much all I know. So <laughs> um, can you? Can you? Uh, I, I guess I do know more, but if anybody doesn't. Um, so what is continuous integration and what is Travis CI and how does that fit into testing? If I had to say in its most basic form, continuous integration is just a form of continuous automation. Uh, every time you save your code, we, when we as developers think about continuous integration, we're really thinking about continuous testing, saving our code and pushing it to GitHub. And that push is going to include a range of commits. But what you want to do is make sure that every time you push, your code is tested on something that's a little bit more, I guess, akin, a little bit more uh, the same, similar to your production environment. And on top of that, as you get into bigger teams, you want to make sure that their code is always tested. You don't want to get into a, you know, a case where it's a really busy Friday, you push it to master and then you quickly deploy it but you don't remember to run the tests in between so continuous integration is usually about having a system in place that will make sure that your tests or the scripts around you know testing if it might be linting as well or maybe checking a full integration systems test are run on each push okay um does it, so you said it to GitHub. Does it only work on GitHub? or At the moment, Travis is only on GitHub. And we primarily focused on GitHub kind of in, for two initial reasons. The one is that GitHub is where open source lived. And when Travis first started out, we were just an open source project. We were, we were doing it for fun. It was Sven and I. Sven wrote this blog post, which was about this new idea he had about being able to run tests and have it live streamed and how it could be really cool for the open source community. And I swear I read it the next day and I just emailed him and said, how can I help? And that day he gave me commit access. There was, there was just this trust. And from then on in, we worked together with a whole, you know, a range of other open source contributors. And after about six months of doing this together, I remember I was on holiday with my my girlfriend at the time and her family, and 
And I remember sending him a text going, why aren't we making this our full-time job? And then it grew into something a bit bigger. So is it, how long is it, is it your full-time job now then? It, it's, full, it's my full-time job. So we're a team of 25 people at the moment. With a, we've just started a, a little bit more of, a little bit of hiring for this year as well. So we've got some growth going on. We're a fully bootstrapped company. Uh, we did some crowdfunding initially. So we're, I'd say that we're a crowdfunded bootstrapped company. Uh, we're profitable and we service, I'd say, half of the, the infrastructure that we have running at the moment. Half of it is for open source and the other half is for people with private projects. Okay, so the, the, if somebody... They would set up a private uh, GitHub uh, repo then and set up Travis through that? or Yes, that's right. Yep. So okay. we have TravisCI.org or Travis-CI.org, and that's where open source lives. So I, I just remembered I can't partially skipped over why we're just GitHub. <laughs> so the, the second reason we're just GitHub is that we wanted to focus on making one good experience instead of branching out and, you know, we're a small team at the time and supporting other source control systems, but potentially not giving the best experience that we could, if it could be with, you know, to do with syncing, if it could be with how we activate or report, um, you know, the status to those systems. So by at least on a product level, we wanted to make sure that we had the right focus and that we weren't taking on too much work. Yeah. So you say at first, is, is there is there plans to branch out to other other products? Or I, I think it's very fair to say that there's a lot of discussion within the team, and and you, we definitely see what's happening there and within the ecosystem of you know, if it be Bitbucket Server or GitLab. There's a lot of reason for us to consider adding those. And now that we've actually got a, a well-sized team and and we've got some growth going on there, so we. We know that we can handle a little bit more. It's definitely a possibility. So how long has this been your full-time thing then? This has been my full-time job for about four years now. Okay. Uh, so when we first started, it, like I was saying, it was like Sven and I. And then towards the end of the year, we had Matthias, or Sven, Fritz and I, and Fritz was helping us with everything to do with accounting and legal and Incorporation, and then Matthias and Constantine joined as well. So we're a team of five founders, and then for the next six months, nine months, we kind of worked on the dot com platform. So at that time, because we had sponsorship as well from the community and from other companies, we separated out private from public, and we also did this on a security standpoint, just to make sure that. While we were developing in the open, we wanted to make sure that we never put anyone's code at risk. So we had two different platforms, and we still have that to this day. I would say, though, that that's a little bit of a relic, and it's something that we're addressing at the moment. So we have .org, which is for everyone's open source projects, .com, which is for private projects, and recently, in the last 12 months, we also added Enterprise for on-premises installs. On okay, so so if I've got an enterprise uh, GitHub server, I can use that as well. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, you can also use it with github.com if, for example, you just run, want to run your own Travis on your own specialized hardware or you've got some special requirements about how it needs to talk with internal services. Okay. Yeah, there, there are, I mean, there are some companies that don't want anything on the cloud because of uh, security reasons. I don't know if they're, they're valid reasons, but. I, I think there's a lot of validity in why people need to maybe run things behind their own VPN. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I've only been a Rails or Ruby developer for the last, oh, I guess like eight years. I don't even feel like that's a tremendous amount of time. And before that, I was a Java developer. And when Rails and was coming was first really there, I felt like there was a bit of a swell of, hey, everything can just be in the cloud. And and I don't pin this just down to Rails, but I, I think this was this new developer mentality that everything can be in the cloud. And that enterprises I wouldn't say a bad thing, but I just didn't feel like people gave some you know, maybe respect to why enterprise might want to do things in a particular way. And I have a new appreciation for that. We've, we deal with a lot of great companies that, you know, for developers, they just want to use the tools that help them be productive and make them happy. And enterprises do have security guidelines and, and very detailed kind of security requirements that they might need to you know, abide by it even just on a government level. So, you know, I think, yeah, there's there's a million very valid perspectives of why you might have to run or your services in a particular way. So um, can I ask you a bunch of, like, specific feature-like questions? Is that all right? Oh, please do. Okay, so uh, I'm familiar with... Um, Jenkins, why would, and that's a local thing. Is there some benefit to running Travis versus just a local thing like Jenkins or something? Okay, well, let's talk about open source to start with. So open source, I think, and and I'll focus on GitHub as well because just in relation to Travis, you've, let's say you're running a popular open source project on GitHub, Python project, Lots of users, uh, it's a library as well. And we all know that Python has a lot of different versions that you can use. Not only different versions, different patch versions, different implementations. Now, you as an open source developer, if you were to run Jenkins yourself, you would be then partially expected to maintain those Python versions. You would be expected to maintain that infrastructure. And at the core of what you're developing, that's not your primary focus. Your primary focus is to make sure the code is complete and well tested and that you merge and pull requests or implement some new features. And let's also consider the uh, the possibility that this isn't a very active project. Are you going to run a Jenkins server for the three or four times, uh, maybe a month or a quarter or a year that you're going to update this project? So Travis is there to actually help with a lot of these issues. Travis makes testing easy and in the open. It we While we focus on security and scaling, you can focus on coding. And it doesn't matter if you're a very busy project or 
a project that only commits a couple of times a year, Travis will be available for you without you having to check, is the service still running? Does it need upgrading? Is Jenkins still up to date? Okay, so the does it does it only test like um, my main branch, or can I have multiple branches being tested? Travis, by default, works on a kind of what's called a, a well based on GitHub webhooks. So if you push to any branch, we're going to detect it. it. GitHub will tell us, and then we hook into the pull requests. So we test the merge commit that is available for that pull request. Now the advantage of that is if you're having a pull request from kind of like outside of your contributors from a fork, then we're going to test the merge request from that fork to your main project. If someone locally within your team creates a branch and then a pull request, we will first test the branch. And then we're also going to test the pull request separate from that and the merge commit because that merge commit may differ slightly from what is currently on that branch. Okay, that's freaking cool. So we make sure that we test uh, all the possibilities so you can actually be, you know, 100% sure that thing's going to go well. And so if it, well, let's say it doesn't. So somebody, somebody puts a pull request in and it breaks something. Who gets notified of that? Is it both the person that pushed it or the owner or both? Or We've tried to stick to some sane-ish conventions if you're doing this based on a branch push. So if, if you yourself or one of your contributors, then it'll be the person who pushed the commit or who pushed to GitHub will be notified. We take that information from the Git commit info. So let's say you push to master, you break master, we'll email you and say, hey, Brian, I think you might have broken something. Okay. And then we've got the links there. Or you can set up things like Slack notifications and it'll just go into your team chat. Now, if it's a pull request, we use the status API. And that way you can look at a pull request and you can see its current status quick and easy. And it'll also show in the history of the pull request. So you can see if... You know, maybe it was fail, fail, pass, fail, and then pass again. And then you can click through to each of the results and see what might have changed. Okay. Is there a way to look at the history of the Travis results? So if you go to the project on Travis, we've got three different ways of looking at information at the moment. You've got your branches list, which is similar to when you go to the GitHub branches page. So you can look at the branch or at the branches list and see your default branch, your active branches, and your inactive branches. And inactive branches are branches that are no longer accessible on GitHub. And then you've got your build history, so those are all builds for all branches. And then you've also got your pull requests list, which is all builds for all pull requests. And and a little bit of a hidden feature, which we're trying to find a good way to you know, kind of bring it into the forefront a bit more, we also have what's called the requests list. So it's hidden under more options, and that shows all of the build request webhook notifications that we get from GitHub. And you can see if we rejected a build request for some reason. So let's say 100 notifications come from GitHub to say, hey, something happened. We may accept or reject that request and only create a build 
on certain circumstances. So you could, for example, um, you could turn off pull requests, you could turn off all pushes, you could ignore a branch, or maybe a pull request wasn't mergeable. So you can see that in that tab as well. Okay. Now, another question I had. So I like PyTest a lot, and one of the reasons why I like it is the different things that really can happen with a test. It's not just pass or fail. A test can also uh, result in an error or an X fail or X pass or skips. Are any of those captured or is it just pass and fail? That's an interesting one. So right now we capture only pass and fail because we hook into the Unix exit codes after you run a script. And it really is simple as just pass or fail because it's a numeric code. There are some extra code numbers that go, you know, there's like 128 or more. Uh, I'm sure there's more. I'm probably partial. I'm sure my brain's just forgetting right now. But all of those don't actually have clear meanings. So it's hard to say what might come out of it. Now, you do get into an interesting territory when you use uh, different output mediums, like you could output your test results to an XML file, JSON, or use something like TAP. And that's going to have a very detailed set of information regarding each test, maybe even something about the the entire test suite. And we don't currently hook into that right now. So we only report the pass and failure, except when it comes to what we call error. And an error is anything that happens during the install process or before or previous to that. So for example, let's say we try to do a git clone and the commit no longer exists on GitHub. That will be an error in our eyes. If you try and install your project or your in, your dependencies and one of the dependencies isn't available or there is an error in the resolution, then we will report that as an error. And it's only during the script process, what we call the script process, like if you're running a test command, do we report that as a pass or a failure? Okay. Now, there's also the a test might have a like some output logging that happens. Um, is that captured somewhere? We capture all of the standard out and standard error. We, when we run one of your tests, we use a clean VM from scratch. Now we have different types of architecture. We've got Mac VMs. We use Docker for some of our infrastructure. So we use it as an orchestration layer for talking to containers. And then we also use Google Compute Engine for full VMs, for full isolation. And every time we run one of your tests, we'll start one of these VMs up. And let's say we use Google Compute. So we start up one of those VMs, we SSH into it, and we run this build script. So it's actually a full bash script, which will encompass all of the commands in your .travis.yaml file. And what we do is we hook into standard out and standard error, and we stream that back to you via first to AMQP, to our infrastructure, which processes the log part, saves it to the database, and then to you via uh, WebSocket, so using pusher.com for our our WebSocket, um, I guess, <laughs> our WebSocket service. So everything that you see in your your browser when you're watching your test, you can watch everything live, 
is at most about half a second delayed. Okay. So if I want to like look at say the the output from uh, from like a good test run and a bad test run, that's something I can do. Yes. Yep. No. Definitely. Uh, so we definitely don't keep just pass and fail. You can see everything that happened. You can see, uh, for example, if you're a, a Ruby user, you might see us run bundle install, and then you can see the output and the exact versions of each of the gems used. You can see a particular um, test that has failed, and you can then look between your build results and see what the differences might be. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm just like thinking pie in the sky now. If I mm-hmm. wanted to uh, create some sort of like JSON file or something that broke up my uh, all my different pass fail error um, x fails and all that, would that be a file that I could retrieve from Travis, or would I need to store it somewhere on my own in a in my own database? So that's a. It's both a yes and a no. Okay. So we've kind of termed that feature build artifacts. And there is a thing built into the .travis.yaml file which would allow you to upload those files to S3. Okay. But, you know, in all honesty, we're not, we're not finished with that yet. I think there is further that we can go to make it even easier for users. And that's what we've, we've got this on our backlog. I wish I could have a, a better time frame for you. But the idea would be that in, after every test runs or every build runs, there would be a set of files that you can just upload and it would upload to Travis. We would store it. You could retrieve it via API. You'd be able to view some of this in your browser as well. So right now, yes, there's a little bit of manual workaround that you'll need to do to do this yourself. The long-term goal, well, the the goal, I'd, I'd love to say this year, but we've got a much bigger thing that we're kind of trying to wrap up as well. But... I would hope that maybe either end of this year or beginning of next year we'll have build artifacts as a fully built-in feature. Well, I hope I didn't didn't sound, seem like I'm uh, slamming you with just the hard questions. No, no, and I, I love these questions. Just the stuff that's on my mind, and <laughs> uh, but I and also I I don't want anybody to think I'm I'm negative on it. I think that that the uh, project is super cool, and I can't wait to get my project up and running on Travis. When we first started Travis, when, when it really first began, the entire concept, the entire idea wasn't about how we can create a startup and make money. It was literally, how can we help open source? How can we make open source better? And Travis first came around when you know there were already cloud CI providers out there. What I feel we did differently was making it easier to test different configurations. So, you know, I would like to use this version of Python and I'd love to run, you know, this script. And that kind of configuration idea kind of resonated with open source users. That's where I think Travis is most important because its goal is to make sure that when you use a library in your project for your client, you know it's tested against that Python version. You know it's tested against that database. You're at least you can at least look at the uh, the output from the you know the build results to see if the, it is well tested. It's trying to make the entire testing process more transparent. 
some projects have a talk, have talks built into it. Is is talks overkill if I'm using Travis, or, or are they just completely asynchronous? That's actually that's a really good question, and I've always floated back and forth on a lot of this. And, and not if talks is good or not. Talks is great. Talks makes it easy for you know Python users to test against multiple versions locally. The trouble is that Tox and then Travis kind of compete about where you should define the version that you should test. Uh, and Tox, the current workaround for making Tox and Travis like work seamlessly together is in Travis, you would have environment variables which would define the Tox version that you should, or the Python version as a Tox variable. And then instead of Travis doing the Python switching, Tox would do that for you. Now, it's a, it's a much of a muchness about how it's kind of viewed, but it's definitely not as simple for us to sometimes get some statistics or to easily display that information. We'll be displaying it as a environment variable versus here is the language being used, the language version. So okay, I, I've had this as... Well, it's been a GitHub issue for a while about how we can kind of integrate with Tox better, and I, I just wish I had a better um, story for that. Like, yeah, I guess it's also just a recommendation. If 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 I'm planning on using Travis, should I use Tox also, or should I leave that out? Sort of a, and I know you you've already answered. You don't really have an answer for that, but um. yeah, I, I would generally say you know start with the simplest thing that helps you get going. Now, it could be using Tox locally, it could be using Travis. And I've seen a lot of you know, more mature projects start to adopt both. Instead of running in and using both, I'd, I'd say start with one and just you know, work your way through and, and find out what's right for your project and right for you. Okay. You probably get, or at least the team gets questions on, what kind of tests should I have on my project when I'm running? Do, do you get questions like that or...? Uh, actually, not so much. Um, testing is a really interesting topic because on, t- on top of that, you know, testing, even when you, you just talk about one language, and now I come from a Ruby background, so we've got test unit, we've got RSpec, uh, you've got mini test, and then you've got different integration, unit tests. I mean, you know, it's a very big, broad topic, even just for one language to kind of talk about. And then you get involved in all the different other languages and should you be using mocks or not? Should you be talking to the outside world? So it's, you know, generally we don't have a huge amount to say about that right now, but it's something that I would like to see us probably get a little bit more involved in. Maybe not so much on the, this is how you should do it, but more on the, this is how you could do it. And I think that's a, a bit of a difference, at least that's for me, because I think there's a lot of interesting discussion. And funnily enough, this is what this entire blog post is about covering, how to do testing. And I don't think we could do it as well as you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's, it's something I struggle with because we, um, yeah, it's just a, no, uh, people aren't, people just don't come out of school with that knowledge and the, the, the information on the internet is is all over the map as to what to do. 
Um, but I, one of the things I'm frustrated with is the information that tells developers to just unit test and don't worry about anything else is louder than any of the other voices. And uh, it's a concern that I have. But So I, I, I'll be honest, Brian, I, I'll tell you a dirty little secret. I'm not the most fantastic tester myself. What I've generally done in the past prior to Travis is I would you know, kind of code, start coding a project and then I would be testing it locally if it be in an interactive session or in the web browser. And then I'd start putting tests around that to kind of solidify uh, what it should be doing, to kind of confirm it keeps doing that. Now, it might be an integration test, might be a simple unit test. I kind of, I personally came from a bit of a background where you test just to make sure it continues to work versus testing every possibility before it even gets to that point of what you'd kind of imagine it looking like. And and that's why it's so hard to get in. It's so, in, I won't say hard, it's so interesting to get involved in the different ways that you can test. Well, I don't think your model is very much different than anybody else's. Uh, the It's just that I don't, I personally don't think the the jump from test what you think ought to be tested to testing the right way should be as huge as some people make it out to be. So, and, and I also don't think people should feel guilty about it. It's it's a uh, software's hard, man. Yep, I, I recently got involved in a project called uh, I'm really bad at pronouncing it, but it's it's spelled P O X A Poxa. Uh, and it's a pusher.com kind of compatible local installation. So you could do some testing locally, I'd say. And it's written in uh, Elixir, really awesome new language. And I was looking through its test suite, and you know it's got a fair bit of unit testing, but then it's got more integration testing as well. And it uses a lot of mocks and Mox and Elixir and Erlang, from what I understand, and I'm very new to the language, of course, uh, from the main contributor was telling me that Mox aren't uh, recommended in Erlang and Elixir. So it's quite interesting to see the differences between the different languages as well, because if, if that is true, that Mox aren't recommended, well, in Ruby world, Mox are very much recommended. And then you come to this the state where every language will have its, you know, different conventions and, and different recommendations. I'm mostly testing from the outside world. I, I want to test the behavior of my system, not the individual functions. Um, but that's, yeah, that's where I stand. I, I, I wrote some questions down because I have a tendency to forget questions. So there's a few more features that I want to ask about for Travis, and then I want to ask mm-hmm. about the team a little bit. Oh, now I lost my questions. So, um, <laughs> Is uh, obviously it's more than just Python. Does it handle lots of languages? We handle. I think the last count was roughly fifteen built okay. into the actual system itself that we recognize. But I'm sure it actually goes far beyond that now. Um, the most recent ones I've been seeing us add a common Lisp and R. And okay. when we first started, we were kind of a, a, a system based around testing Ruby projects. We we were focused on the Ruby community because it was where we were from. And then 
our second language we added was Erlang, funnily enough, because it was added by someone I worked with. And then we added Node and Python, PHP, and the you know, list goes on. And funnily enough, now the most popular language on Travis right now is Node.js. Oh, wow. So times have changed a lot. Yeah. Can I run Selenium tests through Travis? Yes, you can. Yep. So you can you know, spawn a Firefox or Chrome and run Selenium tests, or you oh, can wow. use something like uh, Source Labs or Browser Stack and run, you know, not only the Selenium side of it, but different browsers and different operating systems. Wow, that's awesome. Do I have more questions about Travis? Um, I think I'm convinced. So <laughs> the uh, uh, the team, though, you uh, you started this with uh, Sven, is that right? That's right. Yep. Um, now, are you were you co-located at the time, or? Well, when we very first started it, it was a blog post, and I was living in Amsterdam, and he was living in Berlin. And then about a month later, we met for the first time when he was in Amsterdam with his the place that he was working with, his team. And then from then, we, you know, we had a whole range of open source contributors. The ninety percent of our code is open source, including our web UI and API. And from then, we grew to five people that year, like five Travis team members and kind of incorporated. And then we're now at 25 people with, I believe, 50% of our team is a woman. And, you know, all with the entire team ranges from our foundation side with Anika and Laura, who work on Rails Girls Summer of Code, and helping out our open source projects kind of acquire some funding so they, you know, people can focus on those projects. And, you know, then we've got everything from ops to developers to, you know, team happiness. And are you, do you have an office or are you all remote? Well, 50% of us are remote and 50% kind of live in the Berlin area. So we have an office in Berlin and then we've actually got, you know, we've got people in America, Spain, Norway, uh, I know it's technically America, but I'll still point it out as Hawaii in case Hero is listening because it's like that. It's like, in some regards, New Zealand. It's in the middle of, of kind of nowhere, but still America. And uh, I think that's we've got Carla, who's in Australia at the moment, visiting family, but also doing some remote work. And then myself, I'm in New Zealand visiting family, also working, but I live in Berlin. Okay. Well, Idaho is also in the middle of nowhere and still considered <laughs> part of America. But, um, the uh, where where did the chief post-it officer come from? Uh, that that's that's a little bit of history of that. Uh, Matthias and I used to be co CEOs, but we did this because of at that time, and it's it's still kind of bound into our how our company is formed, we have two managing directors. But Matthias, we regard as CEO. He's focusing on the team leadership and operations. I focus on product. And when I started getting into my role, I used to be one of the main developers, and we've, we've all kind of 
growing between roles as the team has scaled and, and growing. And when I first started doing better product planning, so we could have a better unified focus on where is it that Travis is going and how do we make this happen, uh, I was using a lot of post-its. I was covering the walls in post-its. I love post-its. So chief post-it officer kind of made a lot more sense. So just yellow or do you use pink and blue and other colors as well? Uh, a lot of yellow, a little bit of pink and blue for headers and different kind of topics. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm quite a fan of post-its as well. <laughs> the other day we, I think it was about a month ago, we had a little uh, board offsite, like a little retrospective meeting. And the place that we we're holding the meeting gave us a suitcase of post-its. Oh, different awesome. post-its of different sizes. There, there was that part of me that kind of just was oozing happiness. <laughs> um, the so your 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 team's all over the place. Do you do you get everybody together ever or? Yep. So we every team we've we've divided our team into different shades of blue, thanks to our designer Justine. So we've got Team Blue, Team Sapphire, uh, Team Periwinkle. Ooh, I want to be on Periwinkle. <laughs> Periwinkle. Periwinkle is our office, you know, our team happiness uh, team, so you, you might enjoy that. Oh, never mind. I'm a grouchy <laughs> person, so. <laughs> and every team gets to meet up, you know, twice a year, do their own little offsites, and then we have our company offsite as well. Okay, cool. Hey, is there is there anything I didn't cover that you'd really like to tell the people that listen to my podcast? No, I, I think you've covered a lot of things. So. It was funny, one of the questions that you sent in an original email is one that's actually very near and dear to my heart. I partially covered it earlier as well. It's the difference between .org and .com. So we have that difference of open source versus private. But I kind of mentioned and didn't kind of explain, that is one of our big focuses for this year, is merging these two platforms. Now, we would like it to be just like how you use GitHub. You should be able to go to Travis and see your open source and your private in one area. You should be able to have different accounts and you know pay for different accounts as need be, and have your open source, you know, concurrency, you know, etc. So that is our big goal for this year. While we've been trying to do that for the last year or so, it's all been about trying to scale Travis because. Um, the number of builds and the number of projects on Travis just keeps growing, which is really fantastic to see. And now it's about trying to merge these databases and the infrastructure and all of our Amazon instances and Google and our Mac VMs. So our aim is for, I would say it's probably be Q3 of this year that we'll actually have one website that you can go to, travis-ci.com, and have everything in one place. Now, is this is there a business pressure for this, or is it just something that bugs you guys? Uh, it, it's a, a bit of both. Okay. I mean, on, on one side, you've got different infrastructures that you have to maintain. So it gives you extra overhead of where you put in monitoring, how you provision a different setup, how you scale that. So when we deploy a piece of code, we're not deploying it to one infrastructure. We have to now deploy it to two and we have to keep them in line. So, you know, on one side, you've got technical overhead, which adds to extra 
uh, stress and complexity. On the other side, you also add a cognitive complexity for your users. They now need to know which website to go to to do a certain thing. What if you make an open source project private and vice versa, and then losing your histories between that flow, and also making it harder for larger open source customers or users, you know, increase their capacity. So, you know, we've, we've put barriers in place where there shouldn't even be barriers. Okay. So, so my main request is I really love the About Us page. So whatever you go to, don't lose that. Um, oh, no, no. That will always be there. We, we've got plans to improve that even further. Uh, most recently, Justine added the different flags to show what nationality someone is and where they live. Oh, I didn't know what those meant. I see two flags. Yeah, so my one will show New Zealand and then the German flag as well to say I live in Germany. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, it might uh, probably uh, be the United uh, States flag, and then if Portland's got a different flag, it'd probably be that, because <laughs> it does feel like a different country there. I would actually love to have that some form of live updating, so when you travel, you could change your flag to say where you are. Yeah, that'd be good. But... um yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Josh. Oh, well, thanks for staying up late. I mean, if people don't know, it's 11 a.m. for me. It's 11 p.m. for, for Brian. Uh, it makes it very easy for me to do the time difference between you know, the other side of the world where I need to catch up with my team. It doesn't make the time zones any more fun to deal with, though. Someone has to stay up late. So the 12-hour off thing, the reason why I wanted it to be on Tuesday because I figured I would be over my jet lag by Tuesday, and it turned out that I did the math wrong, and it's Monday night for me. <laughs> um, yes, uh, that's the other thing you have to remember. Uh, but that's the, it's actually one of the joys of working from New Zealand. Now, if, any, if anyone's listening out there, one reason I'd like to promote New Zealand as a great place to work is if your team is in the United States, you get to go on, come online on Monday and no one is there to distract you. You have got a very quiet Slack room. Email is very quiet because in America it's Sunday and in Europe it's Sunday night. So you get a lot of work done and then on Monday evening or Tuesday you'll catch up with the team and then if you're in operations of some form, your Saturday is America's Friday. So you can be offline on Saturday and know that everyone else is looking after the land on on their Friday. That just remind you just reminded me of one more question I had about Travis. This you mentioned the website mentions Slack integration. So what does even that mean with something a service like yours? How would it integrate with Slack? Well, right now we do very simple note. Um, simple integration of notifications like your build passed or failed or it's fixed or it's now failing. I'd love to take it one step further and have a really awesome Slack bot. So you can then say, you know, dot Travis and then ask for the status of a project or maybe even trigger a new build for a project. Maybe you could even request a debug VM via the API. So I feel like there's a lot we could take that. Chat ops is important to us, and I would love to embrace chat ops a little bit further 
and see how we can make it awesome for our users. But right now, so would I specify a, a channel for it to put a status in or something? Or Yes, so you, can, you can specify one or more channels and okay. then you can have all of your notifications go into you know, one area for the team or maybe kind of like a build a builds channel so you can keep it a little bit quieter. But that's one of the greatest things about Slack is like channels are just cheap. I'm, I'm just starting to use it. I have to admit that Slack is like such an incredibly awesome tool and, uh, you know, it's, it's been invaluable for a remote team like us. You don't use a huge amount of services to, you know, keep us all connected. Slack is the main one. And it's funny how so many other communities are now coming to Slack as well in terms of, you know, user groups or even just really very um, isolated kind of ideas like um, if you have a, a product Slack, you know, and have a team of people that just want to talk about product or co-founders, there's a Berlin co-founders um, Slack room as well. Uh, I think I'm going to take that audio clip and send it to Slack and see if I can get them to to, to sponsor the show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your business way of thinking there. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So the uh, the yeah. So I, I'm doing this purely out of the goodness of my own heart. Plus, I'd really like to make some cash from it. So if you guys could <laughs> pony up some money and sponsor the show, that'd be great. So, not you guys, actually. Sure, if you guys want to sponsor the show. <laughs> And I love how you're very direct there. Just pony up some cash there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I joke about it, but that that's a definitely a serious issue. I mean, I'm not involved with a lot of open source projects, but this, the blog and the uh, podcast is a way for me to give back to the community. But um, you can't do it for free forever. It It's just not feasible for, you know, people to do that. Um, oh, I totally agree. Uh, you know, it's one of the things when we started Travis, we were, we were doing it out of the kindness of our heart, but we were doing 40 hours at our job and then another, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week on Travis. I mean, doing a podcast, there's a lot of time prep. Then there's the interview, the the editing, publishing, and there's a lot involved. And I, yeah. Well, you, you, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm keeping you t- too long. Um, oh, you're not at all. It's completely fine. It's only 11 a.m. for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I got to get up at six in the morning. What the heck am I doing? Um, you mentioned that there's somebody on your team that that is involved with trying to get uh, funding for open source projects. Yeah, yeah. So about, I think it's about a year and a half. No, about two years ago, we started uh, what we call Travis Foundation. And it was our way of trying to give back to open source projects. So it first started off as our way of creating a little umbrella for Rails Girls Summer of Code. And for the Python people out there, if if you don't know what Rails Girls Summer of Code is, it was kind of based on the concept of Google Summer of Code, but it was for the Rails Girls um, kind of group where to help get women into tech. And this was to a summer of code just for them, for the uh, people going through the, that kind of program. And Anika joined our team, and she was the main organizer uh, with 
you know, some help with STEM. And they would raise about 100000 a year from various companies to, you know, give women some funding, funding while they worked on these projects with mentors. And I think we're into our third year now and things are going really well. So we've got Annika and Laura working on this, who we, uh, we employ both of them as part of Travis. And when Rails Girls isn't actually you know, going ahead when there's no fundraising and then the, the actual running of the program, we also have a thing called open source grants. So you should go to Travis Foundation. I think it's, oh, it's foundation.travis-ci.org. And there's a section called open source grants. And it is focused on finding developers who want some time, some dedicated time, like two to three months to focus on an open source project. And then we help try and do some fundraising for them, you know, find some companies that might sponsor them to do this so they can have some dedicated time away from, you know, maybe their full-time job. Okay, that's super cool. And I think that that deserves an episode on its own. Is Who would I try to contact? Um, you- uh, I, I can put you in touch with Anika and Laura. I think they'd love to talk to you more about this. Yeah, that just seems that seems like an incredibly cool thing. Anyway, um, wow, uh, kudos to you guys for for uh, supporting that. Oh, that's thank you. Cool. Plus, like, God, twenty five people. That's pretty cool. I mean, uh, just to, uh, I'm just, I think it's neat. You guys started trying to help out the community. You turned it into something that both of you could have as a job, and now not only you guys, but you're employing. Um, you've got a team of 25. That's, um, that's awesome. It, it completely blows my mind every day. I mean, I'm so grateful for the community and how we make it happen. The companies that supported us and the people that supported us through our crowdfunding, the companies that are our customers. Now our team, like, our team is really awesome. I love some of the, the, the diverse opinions and, feedback that comes through on all the topics that we discuss and uh, you know I'm looking forward to the next year and in the growth that we're kind of seeing and the people that we can come you know have join our team and and make Travis better for you know all of our awesome users so to to end on a silly note um, (laughs) I asked you about your beard uh, which I still haven't decided whether I'm going to put it in the episode or not but um Sven has this awesome mustache in on your about page. Does he always have that mustache, or? Oh well, well, okay. Here, here's a little history of the mustache. I mean, it, mustache is actually very much bound in the company history. When Sven first started programming, Travis, he had made some form of bet or agreement or something with some friends or his, his girlfriend about like he was going to do have a year with a moustache, see what it was like. And he had his first presentation at Leon, uh, Leon Ruby conference. The first conference talk I got to do with him. And so we went to Leon and it was around about the times of my birthday. And for my birthday, he had given me what's called a shite shirt, S-H-I-T-E. And every part of the shirt is made from a different piece of fabric. So I said, thank you, Sven, that is amazing. You know what? Every time we present on stage, I'm going to grow a moustache. So 
every conference talk we did for that year, I would grow a moustache before the conference talk. Usually I'd just grow a beard as well. Uh, shave off the beard, I'd have the moustache, and we would both wear shite shirts on stage. Oh, that's and, awesome. And then in one of our uh, GitHub tickets for our internal tickets of what does it mean that we have actually made it as a small business, we put in there that we would shave off Sven, oh, Sven could then shave off his moustache because now we are a business. And that actually, I think it was a year after we uh, actually got the platform out there, we closed off that ticket and he shaved off his moustache. You'll also notice the Travis mascot, who we just call Travis, he's got a moustache as well. Oh, yeah. So, so it it's all part of the story. <laughs> And is, does he have a hard hat on, or is that a just a cap? Or that, that's a hard hat. Uh, okay. So, in our earlier talks, we'd also uh, conference talks, we'd also include the the fact that um, the name Travis comes from this project called Bob. And Bob, when you you know when you build projects or you test projects, it's called building. So it was Bob the builder, and. Oh, yeah. So Travis was a character off Bob the Builder who helped Bob do the heavy lifting. And initially, Travis was supposed to work with this project called Bob. Now Travis is on his own. So we took the the Builder concept, we added the moustache, and um, you know, it, it's kind of where it all kind of comes together. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on. It was really great to talk, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, Brian, I think you might have broken something. It's been a long day. Now, a little bit of a mind blow in some ways. Well, th- thankfully, we're not, being, we're not being recorded yet, are we? <laughs> uh, no. Well, I'm going to confess that we really have been recording from the start, but I'm not going con- <laughs> <laughs> to put any embarrassing stuff in. I edit okay. this thing heavily, so. Okay, cool. I might include the, uh, at the end the, the you should vacation in uh, New Zealand part. So, so before we go into this podcast as well, tell me a bit about yourself, Brian. Like, what is it that you do? What brings you to the Python community? When, how, why did you start this podcast? I'll give you the short answer. If you've ever heard of there, there's another podcast called uh, Talk Python to Me. I got interviewed on that recently and told the long story. <laughs> At first, I hated it, but then I fell in love with Python, and uh, then. Mostly used it for testing at first, and then I also like thought, you know, it was it was really pretty hard to compare like all the different test frameworks. So I'll go out. I'll I think I'll write some blog posts about and compare unit test, nose, pytest, and uh, doc test for functional testing using the same the same code I'm testing in all frameworks, so that people can see them side by side. I started wanting to address a lot of. Um, a lot of other topics like how do you write a good test and because I, I noticed that everybody was coming to programming from different different educational backgrounds and some people learned it on the job and there were huge education holes like developers knew that they should write unit tests but they didn't really know how to how to write a good one and they really didn't know how to write system level tests and a lot of development teams have no QA now they just have the development team and they don't really know how to do that and so that's that's the educational hole I'm trying to fill with this podcast and with the, my writing right now that's me awesome that's a a really great effort that's really 
cool that what, what you've been doing as well. Definitely plug New Zealand. We'll get as many developers as we can to move to Wellington. Yeah. Wages are sane. Housing, you know, it's a little expensive, but it completely makes up for it in terms of nature and quality of life. You have got an exceptionally clear microphone. You, you, you sound radio quality clear. <laughs> well, you, your, your voice is sounding pretty good too. Oh, well, thank you. I've been practicing. <laughs> you actually, actually, you have that radio voice. I think you could totally do, you should do your own podcast, man. I, you know, screw doing a podcast. I'm just going to do like Josh for an hour. <laughs> and it's just going to be me, like me reading books and magazines. Today, I'm going to read this chapter of this book. But each week will be a different chapter of a different book. Wow, fantastic. What have I actually done with my life yet? <laughs> There's a picture on Skype and a picture on the Travis CI website, and the beard length is dramatically different. Yes. So I am sans beard at the moment. The, so my Twitter profile picture, I think, which matches my profile page on the Travis website, is last year when I was like, you know what? I'm going to grow the biggest beard I can. <laughs> and it yeah. got pretty big. And and I could put pencils in it and even pens if I found the right weighted pen. But then I thought, you know what, Josh, it's it's time for it to come off. And it's like your face feels like a couple of kilograms lighter. So I, I, I regularly go in between the two. In New Zealand's only four and a half million people. Uh, Wellington itself is 400,000 people in the greater area. But Wellington City is 200,000 and... It's you know full of trees and hills and and uh, great great cafes, fantastic food. We're a very big cafe culture. So if you ever like think to yourself, where can I take the family? Go down to New Zealand, go to Wellington, and then cross to the South Island and do like a camper van road trip for like a month. Actually, that sounds fun. Show notes can be found at testpodcast.com. You can also find links to support and sponsor the show. And also, please consider leaving it a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Thanks. Thanks.